We're excited to be partnered with Gulfstream Park for their championship meet, highlighting their new Tropical Turf Pick 3. The wager includes three turf races every Friday and Saturday with a terrific 15% takeout and a $3 minimum. The rager will run even if the races are moved from the turf to the tapita, so keep an eye out for that. But hopefully we'll get some good weather and we're going to have shows for the Tropical Turf Pick 3 all throughout the month of December. Lots of tips and analysis, hopefully beyond that as well. New wager we are very keen to support here at In The Money Media. Hello and welcome to the In The Money Players podcast. This is our show for Wednesday, December 6th. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, early in the morning out here in the Sonoran Desert in Tucson, a lovely place where I am at the RTIP conference. Boy, it's been a terrific first two days. We've got one day left. That's the early morning recording of this. Big shout out to our man, Eric DeCoster, does so much behind the scenes. Great to see him win the award at the ceremony yesterday, hosted by another in the money favorite Jessica Paquette and uh, congrats to him. He's really worked hard and and is somebody who, you know, I know really in addition to all the work he does is just very, uh, very interactive with the whole class. And, you know, it's what a weird time to have gone through school during the whole COVID thing. And, and uh, he persevered through it beautifully. And is somebody who it seems like the industry and in the money in particular are going to be fortunate to keep going forward. Today's show, we are going to look back a little bit at last weekend. We'll talk a little bit about the conference itself. And then later in the show, uh, our correspondent, Andrew Brown, had the opportunity to catch up with Randy Moss, who delivered a hell of a keynote address here on Tuesday. And to do the show with me, Peter Thomas Fornital, we now uh, bring in my usual co-host on these programs. I'm going to take a guess. I think he's coming to us for the planet, Texas. He's Jonathan Kitchen. No, I'm, I'm back in Saratoga. Um and, and and here's the the funny part about this whole Saratoga, Texas thing I got going here. <laughs> yesterday we're yesterday we're in Sarat we're in Texas uh, before our flight. We go to get we go lunch. We go have uh, this cool Greek place in town uh, called Abba. We go to Abba. We sit on the patio and have like a summer like a like an Aperol vodka lemon drink on the patio where I had to take off my hoodie because the sun was hitting me so hard. And I woke up this morning in Saratoga, and it's snowing. <laughs> if the place is called Abba, shouldn't it be a Swedish restaurant? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, you're the linguist here, not me. <laughs> we did, we did have a nice meeting with our Swedish friends at ATG yesterday. Uh, looking forward to looking forward to, to working with them. I somehow every time resist the urge to bring up either, uh, you know, to bring up weird cultural references like ABBA or uh, the final seasons of of Secession and uh, and, uh, and 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 the whole Swedish subplot there. But I we, we leave that alone. Um, it's been a good conference so far. We we miss you, J.K. Have you when you've only been out here the once? Did you get to go on the taco tour when you were here? No, I don't. I don't. I don't know why. I, I, we went to some restaurant with Marshall Graham one time, but I did not go on the taco tour. No. Um, yeah, it sounds good. I've been trying to follow it uh, via the interwebs to to kind of hear a little bit more what's going on. But I figured this morning before we got on air, I was just going to bug you and ask you a bunch of questions. But now that uh, I figure we just do it on air, yeah. you know, the the one, the one I was the most interested in. Well, first of all, I want to hear what were some of the good highlights from from Randy Moss's. Uh, keynote speak because speech because I heard like a lot about that and then I also wanted to hear some of your your favorite parts about the CAW conversation definitely well Randy was great and he gave this speech I'm glad you asked this actually because I have a lot to say on this and I didn't really don't really have a forum for it he gave this speech and he was sort of talking about his life and describing his life story which he told amazingly well and does in fact feature some like amazing, fairly amazing coincidences. And he, he felt like the theme of his professional life was right place, right time. And he, and he told these stories about opportunities that he was able to seize. But I was hoping the students would latch on to what I felt like was the real implicit theme of his remarks, which is that how you prepare and your general attitude in life and like 
what you're willing to do and how much you're willing to prepare, that's going to put you in position to take advantage of these things. For example, he described becoming a public handicapper in Arkansas at 13 years old. It started off because he agreed to be the typist to the then public handicapper for some like super tiny amount of money, like 20 bucks a week or something. Not, not great even uh, then. And then in time, because he was a good handicapper himself and making speed figures, got confident enough, actually funny enough to like change around the picks once in a while when he had something really, really strong and his picks started winning. And he eventually became like, the ghost handicapper. And it was like a poorly kept secret that it was really this, you know, 13 year old kid who was, who was making the picks. And this was like, this was like, you know, his real uh, launch into that, into that public handicapping space. But to me, the message of that story is, boy, first of all, don't, when you're, especially when you're trying to break into something, don't say no, because maybe the money isn't all you dreamed of. Like you've got to take opportunities to prove yourself. And then, his ability to do the hard work to make his own numbers and do the handicapping, and then the self-confidence to go ahead and change around a pick uh, once in a while. I mean, to me, those were the themes. And there was more, too. He got into um, his first opportunity at ESPN. This is the other story that's phenomenal. And it tied into, and this might be our our 10-year generation gap. JK, do you, do you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the 98 Preakness and Artax? No, you probably don't. Do you, remember, do you know this? Mm-mm. Have you heard the story no. subsequently? No, 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 I don't think I have. Drunk lunatic named Lee Chang Farrell, who was oh, on the rain onto the rain onto the yes, 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 yes. And basically tried to reenact the film Blazing Saddles and took a wild swing at Artax, the four to five favorite during the race. This was Randy. Randy had gotten this opportunity, like sort of as a one-off, it was the impression I got, to be on the feed that day. And of course, when something like that happens, you know, the inquiry was was endless. I remember being disappointed with the result of the inquiry. I feel like I can't remember what exactly happened. I think I think they actually kept the result of the race. And I was thinking, even with what I knew at the time back in 98, that it was a clear no contest. But you know, not the first disagreement I had with stewards and not the last. But for Randy and his point of view, here he was on air as this brand new guy having to fill whatever. Let's just call it 15 minutes. And, you know, he tells the story and he makes it sound like it's lucky. And and he tells the funny thing about he doesn't remember one word he said. But I guarantee you, knowing him, he had done so much preparation for the race, so much more than he even needed to do, that he was able to actually make sense and elegantly fill those 15 minutes. And then the next thing you know, he has a job at ESPN. And there was more examples just like that. But I, I thought there was just some great wisdom in the remarks, as well as just incredible storytelling. So at some point, that's going to come up on YouTube, and people really need to take a look. But for, for now, you can you can just listen to Andrew. And I haven't even listened to it yet. I hope he doesn't tell those two exact stories. But <laughs> yeah, Andrew will uh, we'll catch up with him a little bit later in the show. And then, you know, the other clear highlight for me was the Legends of the Game Storytellers panel where Charlie Hayward sat down with Stephen Chris, Jay Privman, and Andy Byer, obviously three of our, you know, Mount Rushmore handicapper Hall of Fame types, and went through it was it was really cool because I thought it was going to be more almost like uh, instead of JK plus one, it was going to be Charlie Hayward plus three, like a lot of stories from back in the day. And there were a handful of terrific stories. But what that panel turned into that was really, really cool was a chance for them to opine about issues facing the game. And those guys, CJK, they have something. Those three guys have something that that we don't have. They're all, well, I mean, obviously, Bayer still works with the figures. But really, they're retired or they're at a point in their career where they're not really beholden, they're not beholden to anybody. I mean, you know, we don't pretend that we're journalists. We love creating content about horse racing. We're sponsored by the industry. And, you know, we don't, I don't think that we're shills, but at the same time, you know, there are third rails that that we can't step on with giant clients and, you know, industry powers. Those guys don't give a crap. And I mean, honestly, some of it, one remark in particular by Andy Byer was a bit gratuitous in terms of, you know, shots fired at the industry. But how great was it to be able to hear them you know, just really speak from the heart about things facing the industry. And, you know, I agree with like 80%. Uh, I, I would say that, 
you know, I'm, I'm pretty much agnostic about the whole moving the triple crown thing, but I think there's better arguments at this point to try to put a little bit more space between them, at least on an experimental basis to see if that doesn't get us. And it's not about trying to make it easier at all. It's about trying to have more of the same horses compete. Cause I think that's where the best storylines come from when there's rivals. I think when you have three separate fields for the three races, it's, it's, it's not as, it's not as strong, but anyway, so that's one thing, you know, they, uh, you know, that was a, that was a two to two to one margin of thinking, don't mess with the triple crown at all with, uh, I think it's it's Steve and Jay who are don't mess at all, and 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 Andy who's more open to the idea of uh, of stretching it out a little bit. But can you hear them opine on that? Interestingly, and we'll, and this will segue immediately into your CAW question, J.K. The, the the most controversial thing I heard in the two days was both um, Jay and actually it was really all three of them. I think just. I'll characterize it this way because this is a bit of a third rail for us to, to get into too much, but just pointing out that it is somewhat of a moral hazard to have major industry bet takers like Naira and uh, First in bed with allowing access to the biggest CAW players. And just, you know, that, that was just something that I, I think is a point, whether you agree with it or whether you think it's conspiracy theory or not, uh, is something that is very much worth addressing. And as for the panel itself, I, I think it was a, I call it a great overview. I thought that Oliver Rader did a great job. I enjoyed speaking with him afterwards. It was hard though. I think if I had to do that one again, and I was on the Arizona side, I feel like, I mean, it's not that nobody was, it's not that everyone up there, the four people on the, of the panelists didn't, they all belonged, but anytime you have four panelists in that amount of time, it was hard to get to like the next level. You know what I mean? Because so many other people then needed to speak. So I felt like Oliver was up there in handcuffs a little bit and it kept it maybe a little bit more towards stuff that has that is out there and we know about than totally breaking new ground. But it was still a very interesting overview in the category. And, and I obviously was going to ask a question in that one. And, and I wanted to, I, I just want, I wanted to get them talking about and thinking about what happens without the old school pros betting, you know, the way that, that they used to, I, I think it's a much less healthy industry without racing devoted people who spend their life doing this, whether we're talking about, you know, I mean, they're still involved, but just not to the degree that they were Matisse brothers and, and Mike and, you know, with Sean essentially moving his tack to Hong Kong. You saw how much Sean's willing to bet when you, when you give him opportunities at, at the Breeders' Cup betting challenge. And my point was, you know, what can we do? Let's focus. They had talked in the panel about focusing on trying to get, get more computer teams, essentially, to, to try to make it a healthier ecosystem. But I think there's a little bit of a flaw in that thinking in that, if, excuse me, if you stop there, because I think that all these computer teams they're so advantage oriented that I just feel like it's much easier for them to go and do something else. If the edge diminishes in the least, whereas the guys like our friends who've been doing this and have been, you know, they've betting, betting millions of dollars for years and the game makes so much money off of them. And there's so much more, I just feel like there's so much more reliable than a computer team that could come and go. And I'd like to see, more and maybe it's the same some of the same tools that computer teams even use but put in their hands and the cost of a bet being affected in such a way that they can compete because i think it's just a much healthier ecosystem even if you have to take away a little of the computer guy's edge to have that very healthy class exist and then also be able to have get ready to on ramp the next generation of you know Matisse brothers and and uh, and Mike Maloney. Anyway, that that so that was that was kind of my my biggest point that I wanted to make piggybacking on the panel itself. But 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 all in all, it was, it was some some very very strong stuff. And when these come out on YouTube, I think people should go back and check them out. Yeah, so it's it's funny you say that. Like I still have a couple of thoughts. You know, one I think like. You know, not being there, not hearing it. I mean, not that I feel like you know, and I'm not saying it like this. And I'm sure you feel the same way. You probably didn't learn anything groundbreaking, 
when you were listening to it, because this is something that we've been discussing and talking about and are pretty aware of the interworkings of the CAWs and the ecosystem and how they affect all of that. But I think one of the good things about situations like that, and and this is no offense to to those who, who might fall in this category, but it's just the truth. I think having those conversations to educate the people that don't know that are unfortunately in in positions to make decisions in this industry to better inform them of the of the obstacles that this this creates i think is important which i think can always be used and viewed as as kind of like a, a as a plus you said something in there and, and look I, I think a lot of times you know you and i we are always looking for like analogies to try to explain to people who might not understand some of these interworkings of racing and it's like you said a word that reminded me of exactly what this feels like to me <clears throat> which you said the word advantage. And when you said advantage, it made me think about, you know, I'm a frequent flyer on American and their program is called AA advantage. Yes. Now I, I get like a CAW, I get a lot of advantages because of my status, but I don't get all the advantages (laughs) and like I get a lot, but the airlines have found a very healthy mix of treating me really well incentivizing me to participate with their airline, but still giving the person in 32D an okay experience. Yes, my experience is better. I've earned that experience. But man, it's not that drastic. You know what I mean? It's not that crazy. They don't hold the plane for me. You know what I mean? Uh, I still got to make sure I, I still have to make sure that my, that I have two carry on bags. Uh, they still bother me about putting my laptop away when it's time to take off uh, that, you know, I got to put my seat up just like they do in 32D. And I think that, that, that you're allowed to treat the CAWs well. You're allowed to reward them as being good customers, but you can't give them all of the advantages. You got to let the guy in 32D have a shot to enjoy his flight or he's going to stop flying. And then what happens is, is if you don't have 32D paying for his seat, the discount you're giving me or allowing me to sit in first or allowing me to have a free meal or allowing me not to have to pay for check bags and allowing me to get out to buy a coach ticket and get a free upgrade. I'm going to put you out of business because you need, you need 32 D to help pay for all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that racing completely misses that on, oh. you got to give them something, but you can't give them everything. That's great. That's such a good analogy actually. And I want to give credit. I mean, Pat did an amazing job with all the work that he's done. And, and he, you know, he, he played very nice, but he was the one, I think, who up there the most came from the, the player point of view. And I think he acquitted himself well in that. And on the other side of things, I thought Scott DeRudy made a very strong, what I'll call sort of the steel man argument against some of the fears that I have about CAW players. And the point was basically somebody's always going to have an advantage. And if it's not, you know, if, if it's not the computer players, it's going to be, you know, just another generation of, of great players who fill in to move their spot. But I think, JK, you make sort of the key point about it's all about what what those ad- advantages are and, and how much they, they persist. I had a great conversation and, afterwards. And who's giving and who's giving them as well, Pete? Who's giving the advantage? Did they earn the advantage? Are they given are they being given the advantage by the racetrack? And Gatewood was talking about a, a poker analogy. And actually, Scott DeRudy used a poker analogy in the first place and uh, a, a, about this. Like, you're, if you're not going to – the best player loses at the poker table. If you're not a very good player and the best player is, is beating you up and the best player leaves, well, then you're still not going to win when he leaves the table because somebody else is just going to step up and, and, you know, and the money's going to flow that way. But, you know, look at the difference in pricing. When you play poker, you don't, those guys, the the cost of making a bet, you might lose as that worst player at the table, but your cost of making the bet is the same. And yeah, I just think you can't give them, you just can't give them both advantages, right? Pete, like you can't give them, you can't give them all of the technology um, edges that they have and give them a price edge. I have no problem if you feel like they've earned the technology edge and then you, and then they're in the same pricing situation that we're in. Perfect. No problem. Or if you give them a huge price discount, but they have to play by the same technology rules that we have to play by. No problem. I can deal with those things. Those things make sense to me. It's when you give them both, man. It's like both is the problem. You know what I mean? You can't hold the plane for them and give them first class. Like, dude, I'm going to miss my, I'm going to miss my connection. You know what I'm saying? That's a like good you can't, it's not, it's just, you can't give them both. You got to pick one or the other. 
and the tech advantages, there, there are just so many. Pat actually used the great example. I assume he was talking about Sean Borman putting together pick six tickets at BCBC. It took him an hour and a half, JK, for his $20,000 worth of, of bets. And these were uh, done, I think, with, with in partnership. I don't think he was firing that much. And I'm not trying to out him here um, as, as it's some sort of giant gambler. But you know, that took him 90 minutes. Don Johnson, who was great to hear from and was very engaged in the panel, and I give, I'll give credit to, to, to him as well. Um, how, I don't know the exact answer, but when, when his team wants to put in $20,000 of pick six bets, it don't take no 90 minutes, I'll tell you that much. No, it's 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 instant, and like, and that's the thing. It's it's instant. So they get ninety more minutes of information. Um, I've told this story before. Um, I was at it was Friday uh, at Belmont Stakes. Uh, I want to say it was probably maybe it was Justify. I think it was Justify. Justify your. I feel like I was with you, Pete. I don't. I can't remember. I think I know the story. Is I, I, you keep and I think it was Justify, and I think I was with you. Yeah, and I, think and I, I came up to us in the middle of it and started talking to us while we were doing this. And I was like, read the room, buddy. Not now. <laughs> so I'm trying to file upload and, you know, we're trying to get it in and we're rushing and we're hurrying in. And I hit file upload and I, it was, you know, I didn't do the, usually what I'll do is I'll take how many combinations it is when I file upload, I'll divide it by 60 and I'll divide it by three to understand how many minutes it's going to take. Cause you can have three bets per second. So that's the math, obviously, to figure out how long it's going to take to file upload those unique combinations. And it was like a, you know, we had five minutes to post. They weren't dragging at all. And it was like a seven minute wager. And basically, in the first leg, you know, I used four horses, one, two, three, and 11. Those are the four horses that I used. Well, basically what happened was none of my 11s made it in there before they broke. So essentially, while I wanted to have one, two, three, and 11, who I liked the entire race I'm watching, hoping the 11 doesn't win <laughs> because if the 11 wins, I don't have any of those combinations because I got shut out because of the, of the 30 of the three bets per, per second. And that's that computers don't have, the computers don't have to deal with that. They don't have that problem. They don't have that problem at all. And, and there, you know, also there's other situations in, 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 in the world where like I've wanted to file upload. And it was a, you know, a 45 minute situation and I file uploaded and then they took a race off the turf. You can't cancel them because depending on what what ADW you use, you you have to go in and cancel them manually. So it's impossible. It's it's physically impossible to do it. You can't just hit one button and kill them, you know, and kill them all. Um, And so, you know, then you're just stuck. The computers don't have that problem. They can batch the last second or they can can't they I'm sure they have a, a way to cancel those individual wagers because of the access they, they don't have a way to cancel. But I think the key point is, JK, that they can just do it. They can do it very late. So they might yeah, they can do it at the last second. Yeah, they can yeah. hit it. They can hit it when they when they when they pop the gate, you know, um, yeah, they, they might get know. hosed if they've put it in. And then there's a scratch after that point if they can't if they can't cancel. But. You know, and Don brought that up and I wanted to make a world's smallest violin joke about, you know, maybe the one thing that they, they, can't, they can't get around. Yeah, Don has I mean, said where he won't be offended by that if he listens to they're, this. They're, they're important for the ecosystem. We want to have, there's no business in the world that doesn't want high volume customers. Um, it, it, it's, it'd be silly for, for racetracks and the industry to completely turn their back on them. But you have to find it's compromise. You have to find a way to manage them so that it can be it's a more controlled environment that doesn't destroy what it is that we're talking about. I saw a headline yesterday um, that the NCAA, who we know are, are criminals and crooks, but have 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 decided or, or, or have been pushing for institutions to handle this NIL thing a little bit differently and not having these rogue organizations playing, paying the players, but having the universities themselves, because they're obviously going to be they're They're typically going to be institutions of a little bit more integrity and at least they can kind of keep it under control. They can keep it in front of them. They can report it rather than, I don't know how much does the quarterback at, at, uh, at, 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 you know, at Michigan make, I don't know. It could be a million, could be 2 million, could be 8 million. No one really knows. But my point is, is that by finding a way to, to, to do what needs to be done, but to do it with a little bit more 
organization and, and, and foresight for like how it's going to impact the future is just, it's really that simple. And, and so hopefully conversations like this will get executives and people thinking and, um, and look, I, I'm not trying to be a Homer and pat, um, ourselves or, you know, I'm not really an employee, but you know what I mean? But I'll pat ourselves on the back, but like, like, and I even said it in the, in the, in the symposium is that, you know, Naira's taken a lot of steps. Yes. And Joe Longo right was direction. on the panel and he was great talking about, talking about these areas. I will say this, I think in terms of the whole market and the effect it has on the retail player, it's, it's more than a head fake, but it's, it's not a slam dunk. It's somewhere in there. More things along that line across the board and from different places and, and with even more transparency. Or, yeah. Or well, I'm, the other thing, yeah, because you know, and we've said this before and no offense to our friends at Canterbury, but like a lot of the, the experiments that these racetracks try to do are these stands that they try to make, man, it's really hard to, for, when you're a, when you're, when you're one of 20 and you're the one that's doing it, it just doesn't have, you know, it's like, it's like in your neighborhood, right? You know, you, you live in a, a neighborhood of 20 houses and and you decide that you're going to really take care of your lawn and you're going to really take care of your lawn. But the other 19 don't do it. It doesn't do anything for the value of your home, really, because right. the rest of the neighborhood still kind of sucks. <laughs> so, like, it's the same idea. It's like Naira can do all this cool stuff, but on, a, on, on, on racing's biggest days of the Breeders' Cup and the Kentucky Derby and, and, and right across the 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 country at Del Mar and down south at Gulfstream and at Santa Anita and at Laurel, if they're not doing the same things, we're not really seeing the the the, the full effect of what those changes can do. You know what I mean? It's like it doesn't it doesn't really help us. You know, uh, Canterbury. I've heard. I, I think Craig Mokowski said he 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 had, when I had him on JK Plus One that they're going to get rid of 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 uh, of run up. Well, well, well they, I mean that's great and that's really cool, but like it's not going to move the needle on the way that getting rid of run-up should move the needle. Right. It's just not going to move the needle you know, for the industry. The people who want to take these steps, but if you want to see the real and positive changes, the industry has to act uh, uh, more unilaterally. Right. And, and like, look, we can all make fun of, of, of some of the weird, weird things that the NFL does, but I tell you one thing they get right. They're on the same page. The, the, they, they revenue share. They, you know, the, the, the Cowboys and Jerry Jones realize that the Cardinals being good helps his bottom line. We don't do that in racing. You know what I mean? Like we just don't do it. And it's, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's gotta be all of us. And so hopefully things like this, the the heist of presentation impressed me too. Lisa Lazarus was up there and just, you know, obviously there's been a lot of growing pains for the organization, but they've also done some really cool stuff behind the scenes that, I was like, one thing that I really was, I thought was a positive move was that it seems like they're working directly with a lot more trainers on grounds as sort of like, I don't know if I want to say representatives or ambassadors or just people to help like get the messaging down to the horseman level, because like you can send out all the emails and, and newsletters that you want. And I mean, you and I both know a lot of horsemen, JK, you know, and Lisa even made the joke that they're the, the, the reason that flip phone providers still exist is, is, is there's a lot of horse trainers that still use them. You need people, you need boots on the ground to try to get messaging across. And, you know, I mentioned Heiss also, it's, it's a good segue, I think, from what you're talking about with the idea of, you know, trying to, uh, to, to foment some sense of togetherness between all the, the different jurisdictions. Anyway, this is a great conference. And if you're at all connected to the industry, I, my, my closing thought on it would be that it's definitely worth coming out here. But but the taco tour is still the best. Hey, look, look as, a, as a Texan, you're never going to convince me that tacos aren't the way to make it happen. <laughs> Quick news flash, JK. Did you see this? It's, it's kind of an, one of these annoying news stories that's like later today, this is going to happen. So it's not like it's still not 100 percent. And we've known it was going to happen for a while, but it does sound like today will be the day where officially uh, Kathy Hochul, governor of New York, uh, vis-a-vis the New York Racing Commission, will be saying there will be a Belmont Stakes Racing Festival up in Saratoga. I'm hoping this means I'd love to see three days, you know, three days, four days. If you're going to move all that stuff, you might as well 
you might as well do it. And I'd love to see them mess with the calendar in a way where there's, I think there's almost going to have to be logistically little break before a little break after that should strengthen those days. And we know how people want to win in Saratoga. We, we could have America's answer to Royal Ascot, JK. Look, I've heard, I've heard four days. Um, so awesome. um, from, you know, I mean, I haven't, I mean, I've heard that that's, and I don't, it's not like an in stone thing, like where I heard it, yeah. I heard it from someone who, if they say four days and the conversation definitely started at four days. Right. Um, I don't know where it ended. Um, yeah. I've heard four days in, and, and look, I think it's going to be pretty damn exciting. You know, I think, I think people like uh, to do fun, different things. I mean, the weather usually is, is, is pretty cool right around then it doesn't get too hot yet. So you still have a kind of a springy vibe. I think that th- it'll have more of a, uh, and don't get me wrong. It's what makes it what it is. And I love it. And I'm not complaining about it, but I will say that sometimes at Saratoga, it can feel a little amateur hour ish where it's like, there's a bunch of people who are just like, I heard when you're in this region in the summer, you're supposed to go do this thing. And that's fine. And I love it. And I want them to come. But I think that, that, it reminds me of that breeders cup in 2020 where they had those really lax rules about having to be a horseman to come to the breeders cup at Keeneland. But like, basically they kind of let whoever, if you could figure it out, get in. And like, that was a fun experience where like, you know, there's no long lines and the bathrooms aren't crazy. I mean, I don't think that's going to happen for the Belmont, but I think that that weekend could be fun. Kind of a, if you know, you know, type of situation in Mm -hmm. town, just be very racing centric and really feel like a, a, a really kind of a, a highlighted little meet. So I, I look, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Also like, I mean, damn, I, you know, I gotta be honest, like I love going to the city and I love going down to long Island for, for Belmont, but it's not the easiest thing in the world. Selfishly for me, like to have to go down there and the hotel, I, mean, I get to just wake up in my own bed, which will be awesome as well. So I'm and you as well too, Pete, right? Oh, of course. When you get to wake up in your bed, no matter what for, for Belmont states, but right, you know what I mean? Right. The degenerates have already, my degenerate pals are already fighting over couch space for that weekend. So that's uh, that, that that's going to be a lot of uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Other news that it feels like it's I haven't seen this official, but I've heard it from so many people. Uh, we're just going to talk about it. Preakness will not be moving two weeks out. Um, that that's when it's going to be, and a little bit of a PR, a little bit of a PR issue here for our friends at Stronic that. You know, unfortunately, they mentioned in that original release when they talked about wanting to move it, they did mention horse safety as a reason. This came up in the in the the Christ uh, the, the Christ panel yesterday, and they'll have to backpedal. They'll have to do a little bit of a little bit of Deion Sanders action there. But look, I mean, I think we all know the real reason that they wanted to to experiment with moving this thing. It's less about horse safety and it's more about just having more horses from the Derby come back in the Preakness and then hopefully go on to the Belmont. But selfishly, I'm not too worried about it. I'm, 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 I think it's, you know, Memorial Day weekend was going to be an awkward, was going to be a little bit of an awkward time to try to move this historic event. And it was going to keep me from going to uh, the Swedish equivalent of the Kentucky Derby, the elite lot. But so now I'm, now I think I'm going to Sweden for Memorial Day weekend. But for, if you were wondering it, it sure seems like the date, yeah, dates wise, we know, you know, Belmont, uh, June 8th, um, that it will be almost certainly a mile and a quarter just because of the configuration up there and then, uh, and, and Preakness in its, its traditional configuration. Anything else we want to get to before we look back at some of those races from last weekend? Yeah, look, I, I just want to say that I think sometimes that the industry uh, we find ourselves in and the kind of the fractured, cooperation and communication that I think sometimes happens. I think it kind of accidentally leads you into paths like that. And I don't necessarily like knock or blame them for that because I, I feel like they felt like they were pushed into a corner where they had to do something. Um, and, Who's the day you're referring to? Uh, uh, Stronic, right? Or first. Because the truth of the matter is, is that the participation in the Preakness, you know, I, I think that the two weeks does affect the participation but I also think that, and and I think so that that so I think when when trying to express why they want to move it, making it all about the finances about it, it you know, you, you kind of try to mix in some other reasonings for it. You know, we've all been there, like right. You know, your wife wants you to go do something, and you you know, there's there's one big reason why, but you mix in a couple other ones so that you don't. It doesn't seem like it's just that one big one. You're trying to act like you're thinking about it more, you know, on a full scope situation, because. The real reason 
is is it's fi- it's the finances of it and 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 that's fine we're, we're this is a business you know if the preakness was a five million dollar purse two weeks after the derby then all those horses would run back yeah. and a the lot, reason they don't and the reason they don't is because the financial reason you know it's that's financially it sometimes can financially make more sense to skip the race two weeks after wait for five weeks until the Belmont or even get a little bit of a break and get ready for a midsummer campaign with a Haskell or a, or a Travers and, and, you know, ahead of you. So, I mean, it is what it is. I love the Preakness. I do think there's some other things that are going to have to be looked at in terms of trying to get some more robust participation. Steve Christ mentioned the idea of just increasing the purses overall. I do worry, though, that and yeah, I mean, you would get more horses with better purses. There's no doubt about it. But it's always just such an awkward spot in the character calendar with, you know, you got to give modern horsemen like every reason to to come and run back in, in, in two weeks. And I could see them increasing purses and kind of getting the same field. If, well, I mean, if they, yeah, if they increase it, $250,000 is not going to move the needle. So here's, when I had Mike Rapoli on JK plus one, he, he made this one like comment that I thought about if, if he, you know, he like made a joke about doing a, a $25 million three-year-old race on the first Saturday in May at Tampa. <laughs> what, if there was a $25 million three-year-old race at Tampa on the first Saturday in May going a mile and an eighth. Ooh, how about that? Mile and an eighth. How many horses would be in the gate for the Kentucky Derby and how many horses would be in that gate? I mean, you'd have some real division. There are some for whom the Kentucky Derby and, you know, especially stallion value wise, you know, an ungraded 25 million versus, uh, you know, it, 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 because of breeding, it might not take as way as many as you would think. Right. And what, well, I don't know. And what race, I, I mean, and what race would have the higher average buyer speed figure for the field? Like to me, the, the, to me, the, the, the other race with a $25 million purse would, would be more people love the Derby. They love the experience of the Derby and they would have a full field in the Derby because, you know, some 84 buyer horse would be running in it. That's, I guess that's not, that's a little high, Uh, some 72 buyer horse would be running in it. But, you know, I think that, I think that, and I think it's also the answer to why do we lose stallions and why do we lose mares is because the finances of the game it makes more sense for them to retire than it does to race. And if we had a healthier purse structure, then I think we would be able to keep horses around. And I think that we would have fuller fields, but, and you know, I think horses wouldn't take six weeks in between races because they, those, those races are so important that you, you want to give, you want everything to be perfect because you only have that one opportunity to win a hundred thousand dollars. But if you had seven opportunities to win $300,000, I think people would race more. They would take more chances because there's a lot more opportunity. And all of that comes back to handle health. And if our handle health is high and strong, then those purses can be higher, which then in turn helps all of these other situations that we deal with. I don't think it's a chicken and egg thing. I think that we have to find a way to, to raise our handle so that we can answer some of these other questions that happen. I want to see an obnoxious purse race like that for older horses. You know, that's give the economic incentives to not retire. You know, that's that. uh, And they try, they try to do it to Pegasus, you know, it just, just didn't. And then Saudi came, Saudi came in and swooped them. And then, you know, it's, it's, it just makes it trickier now, you know? It's there's lots of good. First of all, you should check out all these JK plus ones that have been referenced. And we'll talk about the new one, which I am super duper excited about as well. But yeah, there, there, there's a lot, you know, we could we could do this kind of stuff. We could talk for hours about this stuff and we will throughout the course of the year. But we are. I, I'm not missing Eric DeCoster's capstone presentation, which happens in 18 minutes, Jonathan. So we should pivot after we finish plugging the new JK plus one not recorded yet, but any minute now with. The great Brittany Erton. Are you excited to uh, get a chance to talk with her and get a little bit more of a scoop on her uh, move and, and uh, transition uh, to, to to a diff, slightly different career here? Well, let's see. I'm mean, going to try to do my best. I'm not. I'm not going. I told her I'm not going to Barbara Walters her. And basically, what I said was <laughs> like, if you want to talk about what your next move is, feel free. I'm not going to ask you the question. I'm hoping that like that. You, we'll see if she decides she wants to share kind of Perfect. you know more about that. Um, the one, the one story I'm excited to get her to try to tell just from her perspective, we haven't talked about it randomly enough trivia question. No one would ever know is, uh, you know, 
Jonathan and, and Brittany once upon a time with Duke Matisse, Tom Lute, Robert Chow, and, and Mark Kinchin went to where? And, and the answer is a Super Bowl. We went to the Super Bowl one time <laughs> together. So it's, it's so, but it's really hilarious because my brother got so wasted. He had spilled like nacho cheese on himself. And I just want to oh. see, I want to get Brittany's, uh, I want to get Brittany's uh, recap of, 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 of that moment about, uh, about 10 years ago. Well, it wasn't that wouldn't long ago, maybe eight years ago. Wouldn't have guessed that he was the, the, the world famous uh, DJ in the crew. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, yeah, he had nacho cheese all over some designer sweatshirt. And then Duke Matisse is sitting in the stands with his past performances, uh, handicapping and betting on his phone during the middle of the second quarter of, of the Super Bowl. So it was, uh, it was a wild, uh, wild trip. But, yeah, so that'll be fun to catch up with Brittany. And then, um, uh, yeah, so we'll do that today. And then also, Pete, just to, as a reminder, too, while I'm sitting here talking about things and plugging things, we last week was episode one of Side Bet. Um, yes. Lafitte Pinkai, myself, Joe Vanina, my wife and, and Terrence, um, Terrence Thiege, the one of the producers, the main producer for for the Naira Fox shows. And and we're just uh, carrying on talking a little sports stuff. And basically, G makes fun of me the whole time. It's 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 you know, it's it's really all it is. Pretty but great. Uh, we had yeah. we had we had fun. We had fun. So uh, we'll, we'll have too. those released every week. Yeah, we yeah. gave a few gave a few. We're going to have a segment. I think Pete, you'll I think you'll like it's going to it's we're going to call it. Um, I don't know the name, but it's going to essentially be like. Was I wrong or was I unlucky? I like that. Yeah, and, you probably come up with something clever, cleverer for that, but it's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Like, was I wrong or was I unlucky about a, about an opinion or a thought or a, or an idea? So about result, result versus decision. There's got to be something. There's got to be something in there. Let me let me noodle on it. Okay, All um, right, I love it. We need a few minutes to talk about these races. We got to start with Cigar Mile, J.K. Where hoist the gold? Well, I just wasn't seeing as a horse that was going to thrive going the mile he thrived going the mile blew that field away under johnny velasquez and comes back with a 109 buyer speed figure this was a good race um but hoist the gold kind of turned it into a one horse race yes he track might have been a little bit tilted in his favor but but still any way you slice it this was very impressive no, he was absolutely impressive. Um, you know, he, he's he's a horse that uh, a majority of of his dirty work has been done around one turn. Um, so you 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 think maybe he'll probably be limited to those situations. Who knows? Look, I'm I'm a believer. If you can win a one turn mile, uh, a Grade One level one turn mile, I know it's not the Grade One anymore. You know, like the Met Mile. That the conversation for you to be able to kind of stretch out is always there. We'll see what happens with Hoist the Gold. It sounds like they're going to go. They're, they're going to point Saudi. I, I heard they were going to try that, but I don't know if that's yeah. if that's actually true or not. Well, but because um, it's a one turn mile and an eighth, which I don't exactly. understand the behind if, that. But. If one turn is a key to his success, that you, you will uh, you you stay around one turn there, even though you do stretch out and distance. Certainly didn't look like one who would be. Uh, I'm not going to say he definitely is going to want to go the extra ground, but you wouldn't rule it out after what we saw on Saturday. No. And here's the thing, two things about Hoist Gold. One, you know, if you're, if you're running 109 buyers, you know, you, you're, 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 you're in that kind of elite status where, you know, it's going to take some real beating uh, in the, in the races that you show up in. The other thing I'll say is when horses run fast pace figures, fast final times, forwardly placed, it gives me so much more confidence that they'll stretch out because it's not as if they are, you know, having these runs where they're, they're, they're having, you know, they're, they're running and they're winning with, 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 with not a lot in the tank. These horses that run like this, they're depleting their tank. They're depleting their tank. And, and to me, if, if you can find a way to kind of disperse that energy efficiently going longer they obviously have huge tanks to be able to do what they're doing in races that are a mile. So I'm not convinced that they can't get races like a mile and an eighth if they can find more equitable ways to, to, to run those races in terms of energy distribution. Let's talk about the Demoiselle. Life Talk as the even money favorite obliged. Looked pretty good in the process. Once again, speed was good on the day. Inside was good on the day. So, you know, maybe not as much between Life Talk and the rest of them as uh, as the bare form suggests, as the Brits might say. But does come back with an 84 figure and uh, daughter of Gunrunner. Looks like a horse with a chance to continue to step forward and be a big player in the big races next year. What did you think of this one? 
Yeah, I mean, it was cool. I mean, we just don't have fast fillies anymore, it feels like. You know what I mean? Like, these the days of having really fast-numbered horses run early in their career. They just don't really exist anymore. I mean, they're just not that fast. That's the biggest thing for me. Yes, doing all the things, accomplishing all the things, did it the right way, pointing in the right direction, all of that stuff. But, uh, you know, not an overly quick horse. I'm not cutting in line or getting on an airplane to uh, get overseas to bet her in a, in a Kentucky Oaks future but definitely has a promising future. Yeah. I mean, could just continue to, to develop. Um, and I also wouldn't with the same thought, wouldn't necessarily rule out um, horses that maybe to, to improve past her, despite the three and three quarter distance who, who, who were not with the grain of the track. Speaking of not being with the grain of the track though, we got to go to the Remsen and uh, Dornock was the winner JK. And I uh, listened to you and, and Steve and stopped being too cute and, and trying to beat that uh, son of good magic, the full to mage who won with a 91 buyer speed figure, but who was best in the race? Well, yeah, I mean, look, the middle move, you have to take into consideration. Um, I'm going blank on the, what's the horse's name? The middle move. Early um, yeah. <sighs> look, I, I don't know. I mean, I thought door was really impressive, uh, you know, to show that kind of grit, to show that determination um, you know, that, that, that says a lot for a young horse, especially going that distance. I think as the distances go longer, you like to think the door knock is going to continue to improve. And that's a figure that you can kind of say, Oh, okay. 91 Rimson last race is a two-year-old first time going a mile and an eighth, get a little bit of a freshening. I'd imagine a horse that probably shows back up in the, in either the New York races or Danny's down in Florida, probably the Florida races. We'll see, you know, it seems like a horse that could progress. It, it's, 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 it's a horse that when you, if you try to imagine what his past performances are going to look like moving forward, him running a 102 in the Kentucky Derby after running a 91 in the Remsen, like completely makes sense to me. So For a sure. horse that's definitely trending in the right direction. Well, I'm, the, the loaded question I asked you was I thought Sierra Leone was clearly the best. And I think people who say the horse hung are being fooled by the way the track was playing. The inside was clearly worth something. Every horse we've talked about, one wire to wire. And, uh, you know, Dornick was game, yes, but, I mean, for Sierra Leone on that racetrack to come from where he did, make that electrifying move when he did and only get beaten in nose, it was a, a Pyrrhic victory, I would say. Well, there, Class, there, uh, there is definitely some upside, Pete, there. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's only the second race, I think. Uh, yes, yeah, second correct? race. And then, yeah, you know, so. this was one that I was sort of expecting you to pick on the show and was kind of surprised when you didn't because he sounded like one where there was some – some positive hype about interestingly um our uh our, our pals over there at the howard kravitz and his his podcast managed to get on 150 to one on uh on sierra alone for, for the derby before this race i'd say that's a pretty good price down to about 16 to one in europe uh not sure what's available out there in vegas at this point i couldn't do that to my friend uh to my friend chad brown i've i've my luck with futures is horrendous i had <laughs> i had dennis's moment um right dennis's moment that's no 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 not dennis's moment um the one that the one that lost the classic empire who lost the classic empire um uh oh my god i'm gonna he's a stallion why am i not remembering? I'm remembering you had a mastery future i know you had i had mastery zandon Classic Zandon Empire. Was a tough one. Zandon, who went there to win the race and decided he didn't want to go a mile and a quarter on the first Saturday in May. And then who's the other one you're thinking of? I and got it. Race. It's Dale Romans. It, I'm going to have it in two seconds. I'm pulling up this. Who did he beat in the. Oh, not this time. I had not this time. Oh. Had not this time. Mastery. Zandon. I want revenge well, back in the day tough. just you to really him. just. Which race did you have not this time for? Derby. Derby, but not this time. Got hurt though. Right, right. He didn't even run. I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be a race where he where he ran and got beat. I see what you're saying, but you no, no. You, I'm you just saying like you're, just... Putting the, you're putting the whammy on these horses betting a future, so you're not going to do that with Sierra Leone, no. even if the price is. No. Good. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could, I couldn't do that to my man. <laughs> very, very funny. Uh, speaking of Chad Brown, however, boy, did he uh, show those Californians who's boss out there in the Hollywood Turf Festival, uh, Chad Brown's world. We just live in it. Program trading wins the Grade One. Uh, Hollywood Derby at a short price, 94 buyer speed figure, but the accomplishment of the weekend came on Sunday where surge capacity and, uh, and, and her three stable mates go one, two, three, four in, in the matriarch, just uh, 
you know, basically laying waste to the locals and giving more fuel to the fire of, uh, of what we always like to say about East Coast turf horses shipping west, but especially when they're trained by Chad Brown. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a heck of an accomplishment, you know, to be able to run one, two, three, four like that in a race uh, of this magnitude, and and uh, yeah, I mean, look, I don't think there's any question. I don't think anyone questions that 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 Chad is is you know the premier turf trainer in this country, and 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 I think that anyone who wanted to make the argument of the world, um, the only argument I guess that they would have is that he he hasn't necessarily gone over there and won races. Not that I think that yeah, he's not capable of doing so. I love Chad. I don't think you can go the world when the Aidens and the Applebees go literally all around the world and win everything. Yeah, but they go, they go, they go around the. I mean, he goes around the country. They go around the world over there in their little area. But I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I I, like I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't argue with the with with someone who who was either for or against. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's it's be fun to see Chad Brown sending horses to other places. But it seems like he's such a creature of habit, and he's so good at getting these target these horses to these targets that are worth so much money and make his horses so valuable. I I wonder if we'll if we'll get to see that. Maybe at some point with the right owner, Uh, he's certainly capable of winning a race at Royal Ascot or anywhere the hell he wants in the world. It, It just feels like it's just not. He doesn't view that as his remit. I promise I'll ask him when I have him for JK plus one. But I I think that. I think that the answer is somewhere, and I know you. I know you got a heart out here, Pete. I think the answer is somewhere in the. Okay, I'll, we'll, we'll let them know oh, how the song just made. Out of the PJs and into the into the close <laughs> kind of, So we have we have like three more minutes. I, I think I think a lot of it has to do with a couple of things. It's like let's just say like you, you know you have a good Philly or something like you know you have a, a newspaper of record, like it's an experience to take her over there to win at Ascot. But it doesn't necessarily change her value if you can just win a bunch of grade one races here. And the purses are so much higher here that it doesn't really – There's it's it's only for experience. It's only for I, the prestige I, I of it. I, I actually disagree because, the, because I think the international bloodstock market is so rich that having – that kind of experience and, and a win at Ascot is so like emotionally valuable to that international crowd that I really think they would value that on the backside, on the breeding side more than you might think. I get it. That makes sense. I mean, I, it's just, people can disagree, but I'm just saying there is an argument to be made the other way there. No, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I, I think eventually he will. I mean, in, in fact, I've talked to him about it. I think he wishes he would have taken a newspaper record over there. Um, I think he feels like that's, you know, that's one that he, he kind of like, ah, you know, I, I would have, I would have won with her. I should have taken her there. She would have liked it, but, um, I'm sure he will at some point. I think his early career experience over there wasn't that positive for a number of reasons. If he, if he comes over there with you and me, JK, it's going to be something different. It's, it's, I'm going to ask a good luck charm. Just ask all those American connections who won last year. Of course, this is just, it's uh, get, get Pete in a morning suit. And if you, you know, maybe he'll lose it. Maybe he won't. We'll see. <laughs> That's a good note to end on. I think my friend, great stuff from you as ever. Look forward to catching up more. We're going to go back. Look, it was a bit of some growing pains with the all turf pick three, some ADWs late to put it up, et cetera, et cetera. But sounds like things are much more on target for that bet to get going. We're still considering this like the soft launch of the bet, but we will be having shows for Saturday and Sunday. We'll record those on Friday. We've already told you about all the other stuff we have coming up on the In The Money Media Network, but we still have another guest to get to, JK, unless you have something else to say, we're gonna get to that right now. Here at the Global Symposium on Racing with the unofficial youngest ever newspaper handicapper, you also know him as NBC Sports' Randy Moss. Randy, I turned to Peter Fornatale after your keynote up there, and I said, that was the best keynote that I have ever really? heard. It was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I think the crowd were listening to every single word that you said. But you conceded that even a man with your broadcasting experience and everything that you've done gets, what, a little nervous? Oh, yeah. There? Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, you know, as I, as I said up there, I, I could be at the Super Bowl and can talk knowing there's a million people watching, but you can't see them. You just <laughs> see the camera, right? And so there's just a little bit of comfort in that. But when you're standing up, even in front of a crowd of a couple hundred, even people that you know, not I mean, not everybody's like this, but I am. I mean, yeah. I got up there, oh, yeah, oh, totally. I was completely nervous. It, it, it's like a horse, though, right? You break slowly out of the gate, and then you kind of warm up into it, and then you're yeah. fine. Yeah. Right. So the underlying theme of your speech here was 
right place, right time. As you told your story of the 13-year-old yep. ghost handicapper for the local newspaper who would eventually go on to cover multiple Olympic Games for NBC. Let me put this to you. Could an al yep. alternative theme be you make your own luck? Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's the old saying, the harder you work, the luckier you get, right? But with yeah. me, I think it's a little extreme, <laughs> the luck aspect of it, because I've had, you know, I've had, yes, I work hard. And, you know, I think I'm pretty good at what I do, and I try to prepare and all that. But you've got to have the opportunities to be able to do that. And with me, the opportunities that presented themselves at just the perfect time in my life, it just almost, you couldn't duplicate it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I told my kids, my kids were like, you know, how did you get to where you are, Dad? Is, you can't even pay any attention to that. You might as well play a lottery ticket because his zoo was that, that kind of weird. I mean, from the 13-year-old handicapper to all the way down to the very end where I got my, uh, my first full-time TV job because a guy ran out on the racetrack in the middle of a race at Pimlico on Preakness Day and tried to swing at one of the horses. And I happened to be the guy filling in in the analyst chair. And then two days later, they offered me a full-time job that never probably, maybe, never would have happened if that incident hadn't occurred. Just things like that. But I'd have to also put it to you that you were prepared as you possibly could be that day, right? And, and it was that preparation that went into it. Yes, it might have been a stroke of luck that you ran into the ESPN executive producer a couple of days before and, and then got that opportunity. But then, and, and we're talking, of course, the undercard on, on um, Preakness Day when it was Artax, wasn't it? Just, yeah, 1999 uh, Maryland Breeders' Cup Handicap. I'll never forget right. it. Tell a little bit about the story. Yeah. All right, so it's my very first day uh, at ESPN, uh, and I was filling in uh, for a guy that, uh, that couldn't make it because he had a previous engagement. I was sort of a last-minute substitute, and I was just uh, you know, trial by fire, just getting my feet wet and trying not to screw up too badly. And uh, one of the undercard races was that six-furlong sprint, the Maryland Breeders' Cup, and halfway down the stretch, you look up, there's a guy standing on the racetrack. He had scaled the fence in the infield, gone under the rail, and he's standing facing the horses as they're bearing down on him, Right, menacingly, and the jockeys and the horses at the last second had to try to avoid him. And he took a big swing at one of the horses, which was the favorite Artax. I don't think he knew it was Artax, but just happened to be. Missed the horse, um, goes to the ground, security comes out, wrestles him. But you know, I'm the guy, I'm the analyst, right? It's the bizarre, most bizarre moment in American racing history. And you know, here's the fill-in analyst who's sitting at the desk. And there was so much to talk about. It was so compelling, so much drama, you know, long stewards inquiry. We talked on and on and on and on and on about it. And two days later, they offered me a full-time job. And I'm convinced that at least part of that, yeah, I prepared, but you can't prepare for that. You know, if that hadn't happened, I don't know what would have happened ultimately. But yeah, two days later, they offered me a full-time job and 25 years later, I'm still in the TV business with NBC. That was ESPN. Yeah. So it's funny how things happen sometimes. And you, know? you still remember that gentleman's name that ran out. Lee Chang Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not on your Christmas card. He's not on my, yeah, I said I never sent him a Christmas card. Uh, but I'm convinced that at least in part, maybe in total, I don't know. I never really talked to the guy who hired me about that, but uh, you know, I think that had something to do with it. I have to say, it has to uh, have a little bit to do with your charisma and good looks as well. There, uh, good Randy, looks, really. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I looked a lot better when I had a full head of hair when I was uh, when I was a young adult. Uh, in the in the TV business, uh, where I first got started, uh, 20, 21 years old, local television market. The newspaper decided it would be a good idea, a good publicity for them to put me on TV. So, I mean, I got some valuable. TV experience doing that, you know. I mean, uh, one of the very first things I learned in the TV business, I've only been on the job for a few days, and uh, I would get to the track at 6.30 in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. I'd do the TV at about 5.30 in the afternoon. I had a horrific 5 o'clock shadow. And the TV people, I'm like a convict, and the TV people are like, Randy, uh, you got to wear makeup. And I'm a 21-year-old, single. I want to be more masculine, not less masculine. So I'm not going to wear makeup. I'll just shave right before I go in the air. So the next day I bring my razor, my shaving cream, and I've got 10 minutes to air time, I go in and I shave, and I basically cut a surgical incision on my chin. Oh no. Cushing blood. <laughs> and I thought I had it stanched, I thought I had it stopped, I, you know, pressing as hard as I could on my chin until the very second that we went on the air. And so we went on the air, and uh, I thought it was fine, and 
unfortunately, this was one of those hits where it's supposed to be one minute, and they had extra time. They made it two minutes. Oh, nice. And about halfway through, the cameraman leans over from behind the camera and looks at me and wipes his chin as a signal. So I reached up and I wiped my chin. I look at my hand covered in blood. <laughs> uh, the next day, they brought a makeup artist to the racetrack, and I learned how to put makeup on. But yeah, just little things that you know, teach you along the way. Awesome. Now, there are two serious issues that you raised when you were up yeah. uh, on stage for your keynote, and, and that's two obstacles, I guess, that you think uh, horse racing has to overcome, two of the serious ones, and, sure. uh, or the primary issues, one of them being uh, horse racing safety and fairness, and, and the other being uh, the integrity of betting pools. Can you, can you talk a little bit, elaborate on those two things yeah, for us? Yeah, well, horse safety, you know, obviously we're in an era right now in which uh, animal rights is front and center more than it ever has been before, and there's a certain social license that I think sports have to have uh, nowadays, uh, with social media especially, in order to be seen by the public as a reputable sport and to be able to thrive. And that's one of the real challenges facing horse racing is not only to make, uh, to make racing safer for racehorses in whatever way you can, but also to be able to communicate effectively to the public about the strides you're making. I think that's something thoroughbred racing has not done very well, mm. right? because um, they are making strides in horse safety. Uh, it, it's something, you know, for a long time, horse racing had a sort of uh, modus operandi where when you had a tragedy happen or something bad happen, horse racing just, you know, retreated into its tortoise shell and waited until the furor died down and then popped back out and continued to do business the same way they did it before. That can't happen now. That cannot happen. And I think the sport finally understands that and a lot of strides have been taken. The other thing, the uh, integrity and the fairness of betting pools, there are now um, computer-assisted wagering groups that, comp that it, it's not for sure exactly what their impact is, but they're believed to account for you know, up to 40% of the handle that's bet in this country. And they're given an advantage to have a direct computer hookup into racetrack betting pools that enable them uh, their computers to instantly analyze all of the betting pools and find inefficiencies and capitalize on them instantaneously at the last possible minute. That is an advantage that other regular run-of-the-mill bettors don't have. Uh, and it's pair mutual wagering is me against you. And when something like that is fundamentally unfair like that, uh, and one side is winning a lot of money because they have that access granted by the racetracks themselves and the other betters don't, you know, that's something that's going to have to be addressed. It's complicated because they, they comprise so much money, so much of the betting handle. But there's got to be a way uh, to keep the CAW players happy but also to protect um, the fairness of the betting pools for the regular horse player. Yeah, I think uh, uh, like a lot of things in this sport and, and in life really, it's just everybody wants a level playing field. Right. right? Yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's all about a level playing field and a, a couple of panelists at a subsequent uh, talk raised a great point that now a lot of these big uh, computer assisted wagering uh, cartels partnerships uh, are part owned by racetracks mm -hmm. Gulfstream Park, First Racing Naira, that's fundamentally wrong for a racetrack to own uh, to have an ownership stake uh, in an organization that is uh, working to the disadvantage of its regular run-of-the-mill betting customers that the sport really needs. I mean, we've, we've discussed the obstacles, but how optimistic are you about the future of the sport in the United States? Uh, I'd like to say I'm tremendously optimistic. Horse racing, unfortunately, has a long history of uh, uh, internal warfare, one side against the other and not coming together, pulling together, right? Churchill Downs has got its fiefdom. It's a publicly traded corporation. It's really only concerned about its, its stock prices. Naira's concerned about New York. Purse Racing is concerned about its properties. A lot of times they're at war. And that push and pull among the various industry factions is not good for the sport. You don't have, like, the NFL where you have a commissioner and team owners. They're all working toward the same goal. Uh, somehow, some way, people have got to come together in the sport. If that happens, I'm optimistic. Mm -hmm. because horse racing is a great sport. You look around the world, it's thriving in some places. Um, and it can happen in the United States, but it's got its issues, uh, and sport's going to have to come together to resolve them. Well, as you set up on stage, if they can make baseball interesting, hopefully there's, uh, <laughs> uh, we can be optimistic about the future of horse racing. Before I let you go, Randy, 
In terms of um, your horse playing career over the years, have is there one story that sticks out over the decades? Your, your favorite horse racing story, horse player story? Yeah, yeah. I'll try to be quick with it. I told the story up there of a uh, hitting a five hundred thousand dollar, almost five hundred thousand dollar pick six Louisiana Downs that almost got me fired. Um, fortunately, it didn't. But the way we hit that pick six, it was actually a column written about it in the newspaper. Um, uh, we had already played our pick six ticket, right? And it was a pretty substantial ticket. It was like a $15,000 ticket, huge carryover pool. And so during the day in the press box, a phone call comes into a friend of mine from a bookie in New Orleans. There was a trainer who was known for larceny, who was known for setting up bets, who was crushing the bookmakers in New Orleans on one of his horses that was running in our pick six that we did not have on our ticket. So we were panicked. Um, fortunately, in one of the races in the pick six, in that particular race, there was a scratch. So we were going to get, by rule, the post-time favorite in that race, and we were on our hands and knees, you know, begging that that horse would be the favorite. So when they opened up the betting for the race, he was the favorite because the bookies were laying off all their money, right, trying to suppress the odds and, and all that. But as, as the minutes progressed and, he, you know, the odds ticked up and up and up and up, and with about maybe five minutes to post or so, he was no longer the favorite. And my pick six buddy said, what are we going to do? And I said, I got an idea. So I hit the steps. I ran downstairs. There was a guy downstairs who was a good friend of mine who was, he's a tip sheet guy. Essentially, he was a tout. And he had very uh, well-heeled, rich clients that were in the restaurant that he would advise on horses, and they would cut him in for a share. And he always told me, if you get any hot tips on something, please let me know. I sprinted down the steps. I found Ralph. And I said, Ralph, I got something for you. Bookie, New Orleans, horse, this race. Thank you. He sprinted into the restaurant to his rich customers. I ran up the steps. So my pick six partner said, well, what'd you do? And I said, I told him. And I said, all we can do is watch. The last two flashes, the horse crept back down in odds. The final flash, he became the favorite. Oh we got him on our ticket. The horse won. Oh, my gosh. And we hit a pick six for a little under $500,000. That is an unbelievable <laughs> story. And how smart of you to think of that, too. Right place, right time. Again, there you go. Story of my there. life. Story of my life, Andrew. Uh, Randy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you for, uh, for that keynote before. As I said, it was just absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure that uh, you really impressed a lot of the students that are here, too, looking to get into the game. And hopefully a few of them are listening to this as well. But, yeah, thank you, Randy. Thank you so much. It's so nice to say. Thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. would like to thank JK, Andrew Brown, Randy Moss, all the folks out here at uh, the symposium for making this a really fun few days. Let's also thank our founding partners, Tent Strike Racing, and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. Most of all, though, I want to thank all of you, our listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May you win all your photos. <laughs>